0: So we're in the thick of the pre-presidential primary campaigns. Don't worry, we have only about a year to go until, (laughs) until the election. A week or so ago, there was a flurry of news about the questions the press had asked the Republican candidates in the last debate, whether they were insulting and nasty, merely disguised attacks intended more for their gotcha effect than to help the public get to know the candidates. One seasoned Politico says, the Republican presidential candidates are right. The questions asked at the CNBC debate were awful. But the candidates complained for the wrong reasons. Gary Pierce, who has prepped candidates for over 40 years, says that by straining to ask the tough questions, the panel actually made the debate too easy For the candidates. He says, less is more. CNBC's John Harwood asked Donald Trump a long, rambling question ending with, is this a comic book version of the presidential campaign? Pierce says, a politician looks at a question like that the same way a home run hitter looks at a fat, slow pitch right down the middle. This one's going out of here, baby. And yes, now that baseball season is over, I am hungry for baseball metaphors. Pierce says the hardest questions are short and sharp and simple. Questions like, do you think Social Security and Medicare should be fundamentally changed? And if so, how? Or, do you think the richest 1% of Americans have too much power? The exchanges at the beginning of the 12th chapter of Mark, before our verses this morning, remind me of the campaigns. The authorities question Jesus, debate him, they even try to trap him, and Jesus makes an opening statement, a parable, about the vineyard owner who sends his son to collect rent, but the son is killed, and so the owner boots out the tenants and gives the vineyard to new folks. The religious leaders aren't clueless they've figured out that Jesus is talking about them. And so they're asking the kinds of questions that no matter how you answer, you'll offend someone. Questions about taxes, about marriage, about who gets to tell women what to do. Some things don't change. Jesus is pretty nimble at avoiding the gotchas. And then a scribe steps forward and asks a short, simple Sharp question, what is the greatest commandment? It is a hard fastball. It will show who Jesus really is, and so it does. Jesus answers, love God completely and love your neighbor as yourself. Everyone would have expected the first part of his answer, loving God. It's the watchword, the touchstone, the core of the Jewish faith as David read in the Deuteronomy passage. They may not have expected the second part, love your neighbor, but it wasn't new. It's in Leviticus. What's new and surprising is the way Jesus connects the second part to the first part in a way that means these two laws can't really be separated, that they, really, they, they can't really be understood apart from each other, You can't love God, in other words, apart from loving your neighbor. The scribe says, you're right. And we might be thinking, well, yeah, of course, Jesus is right. But the scribe brings a different spirit to what had been a nasty attempt to trap Jesus. And this changes the day. Jesus tells him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. The scribe is not far from the kingdom of God, not because he gave the right answer. This isn't about who's the smartest kid in the class. But because the scribe understands this link between the two laws, that the only way to truly love God is to love other people as we love ourselves. We tend to gloss over that last clause, the as-yourself part, What does it mean? We we might be tempted to hear this from a contemporary psychological perspective. We might hear it as a mandate for the kind of self-love that we actually do know today in 2015 is important, the kind of self-esteem or self-respect that protects us from allowing others to bully or abuse us or that fuels us to live in a way that reflects that we are worthy of love and belonging. It's an intriguing question. Can we love others more than we love ourselves? Many would argue we really can't. But as interesting as that question is, that isn't what the biblical writers have in mind. The Greek word Jesus uses is agape. C.S. Lewis defines this kind of love succinctly. Love is not affectionate feeling but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. The biblical writers begin by assuming that everybody wants his or her own ultimate good and will act accordingly. I think this is true. Even when we think of tragic examples of self-destructive behavior, behavior that reveals poor self-esteem, Behind it is a sadly broken idea about what it takes to achieve the ultimate good. So, what that phrase, as yourself, means is that we are to seek the well being of our neighbor, of others, with the same zeal, the same energy, the same creativity, and the same commitment. That we would pursue our own well being. It means that your neighbor's well being is to have the identical priority to your well being. Are you hungry? So is your neighbor. Feed him. Are you thirsty? Give your thirsty neighbor a drink. Are you lonely? Befriend someone who is lonely. Are you frightened or sad? Find someone to comfort. What gets in the way of our living this? I suspect that when many of us, or at least most of us, might hear the well being of your neighbor is to have the identical priority to your own well being, it sounds a little scary, or maybe a lot scary. What creeps into our hearts is fear, perhaps. Fear of scarcity, fear that there won't be enough for me and mine, for my family, my tribe, my country, my people. Enough resources, enough well-being, enough whatever. Perhaps fear for safety, fear of the one we think of as the other. Again and again, we see how it isn't hatred that is the opposite of love, it is fear. Renee Brown describes how she ran into a certain man who was homeless several times, the same man in different places. She realized she was afraid to look him in the eye. She wrestled with this and remembered something about her grandmother, whom she called Mima. When Brown's mother was in grade school, her family lived near the railroad tracks in San Antonio. The grassy side of a small hill leading up to the tracks was the perfect place for Hobos to jump out of boxcars, hobos being a term that was perfectly politically correct in the mid 20th century. Brown's grandmother kept five metal plates, five metal cups, and five metal forks in a dishpan under the sink. She always cooked more food than her family could eat, and the hobos would knock on their door pretty regularly and ask for dinner. The men sat on the porch or the porch swing and Meemaw served their meals on these special dishes. Brown asked her mother why it worked, why her grandmother trusted the men and she trusted them and they trusted her. Her mother said, we were marked. There was a system of markings on the curbs and fences that hobos used to let each other know who was safe who was friendly, who might feed them, and who wouldn't. Her mother explained that Mima trusted the men for two reasons. First, the woman across the street had a brother who returned from World War II who had become a hobo. So Mima never thought of hobos as the other because she knew hobos personally. More importantly, she considered herself the other too. She'd lived through poverty, domestic violence, divorce, and her own alcoholism. She didn't judge, said Brown's mother. Second, Mima had no problem with need. She wasn't afraid of people in need because she wasn't afraid of needing others. Brown's mom explained she didn't mind extending kindness because she herself relied on the kindness of others. She knew the truth. We don't have to do it, all of it, alone. We were never meant to. Brown figured out through wrestling with this story that she couldn't look the homeless man in the eye because she couldn't bear to make eye contact with her own deeply human need. She looked away not because she was afraid to help, but because of her own fear of needing help. Helping and giving were comfortable for her, or at least she thought they were. But Brown concluded, as it turns out, I'm not so sure I was great at giving. How can we be truly comfortable and generous in the face of someone's need when we're repelled by our own? The fact is, when you judge yourself for needing help, you judge those who need helping. There are two central and related points that connect this story to Jesus' words to us about loving our neighbors. First, Mima wasn't afraid of the hobos because she understood there was no other. God doesn't look at anyone and see the other, God is one. Deuteronomy tells us, and God includes us all in God's oneness. The scribe in today's passage gets it, that we can't love God without loving our neighbors because the life of loving each other is the life that creates justice and creates freedom and creates peace for us all, for us all. It is the life that is truly life, the best life, the life that, The God who loves us like a parent wants for every one of us God's beloved children. The best story that I've heard that explains this is about an anthropologist who proposed a game to children of an African tribe. He put a basket near a tree and told the kids that the first one to reach the basket would win all the fruit. When he said, go, they all took each other's hands and ran together, and then they sat down under the tree together and enjoyed the fruit. The anthropologists asked them why they ran like that. One of them could have been the big winner. The children said, Ubuntu, how can one of us be happy if all the others are sad? Ubuntu, as Walt Davis explained to me some time ago, is a Zulu or perhaps a Nguni Bantu word That is best summed up I am because we are. This points us to the second way Brown's story connects to the passage. Brown's grandmother reminds us that we can't achieve life, the life that God wants for us, by going it alone. We were never meant to go it alone. It might be, like Brown, that it's our fear of our own neediness that keeps us from acting a way that makes our neighbor's well-being an equal priority to our own. It might be that we believe that we are self-sufficient, that we have made it on our own, and so others should too. That belief is just another way of expressing the fear of being needy. No one can go it alone. We are supposed to need each other. That is what is at the core of love your neighbors as yourself. That is the reason for these two great commandments. We are because our neighbors are. Our American myth of the self-made man is just that. It's a myth. It is a myth that denies the reality, the truth, of the two great commandments. It is a myth that drives us farther away From the kingdom of God. Today is Together We Serve Sunday. We celebrate today that 118 years ago this week, that's just 18 years before Bob Houston was born, (laughs) our congregation was founded. If you are new to our congregation, you may not know that Together We Serve is our congregation's motto. It was started by one of our dear departed saints, Johnny Holm, who signed all his church correspondence that way, and it stuck because it expressed our commitment to loving God by loving and serving our neighbors, and because it continues to remind us of what we strive to do and be in response to what God has done in and through and for us. This is a congregation that serves, and we will celebrate tonight tonight. At our Together We Serve dinner, there'll be plenty of serving tonight and plenty of being served. And here is the thought, the twist on loving our neighbors as ourselves that I want you to bring with you tonight and into the week in front of us, maybe into the rest shelter if you volunteered for next Friday's shelter night. Dependence starts when we are born and lasts until we die. Given enough resources, we can pay for help and create the mirage that we are completely self-sufficient. But the truth is that no matter how much money, how much influence, how many resources, or how much determination we have, none of that will change our physical, emotional, and spiritual dependence on others. Not at the beginning of our lives, not in the messy middle, and not at the end. As Bob Dylan sang, may you always do for others, and let others do for you. We are supposed to need each other. God is one, as the psalmist says. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. We are all God's beloved children. God created us to need each other. God created us to love our neighbors as ourselves. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.